This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Previously on The Gist, talking to me is Al Gore. We're going to talk about the science, the sequel, and changing minds. Hello, how are you? Hi, fine. Thanks for having me. Senator Charles Schumer of New York. Hello, Senator Schumer. Hi, Mike. Great to be with you. Jeb Bush was a two-term governor of Florida. Thanks for coming on. You bet, Mike. Sarah, welcome to The Gist. Thanks for coming on. Hey, cool. (laughs) Uh, My pleasure. I'm a fan. Hello, Mayor Pete, as they call you. How are you? I'm good. How are you? So here is the problem. There are words for this, like cancel culture and silencing. We are losing the ability, the capacity, and the desire to disagree well. And by well, I mean better informed. Bear the bear, bear news. Ah! Woohoo, looks like we made it, the third party. Donald Trump is much more likely to acquire a lap band than Lapland. Mark Marin is here with me. Hello, Mark. How are you, man? That's a, that's a, a hell of a, a thing. We all, at least I didn't, recognize the existential threat that Donald Trump represented to the country and to black folk. Bum, bum, bum. Master of the taint, I think that you will find Cohen's not exactly a great legal mind. Master of the taint, your client's number three. You couldn't pay a porn star enough hush money. Ralph Nader joins me now. Hello, Ralph. Hi, Mike. And as president, my plan uh, is to move towards a freedom dividend where every American gets a thousand bucks a month, but also to appoint a trucking transition czar. Is it treason if the coup is plotted from above? The love between an animal and a human doesn't mean intercourse. Bam! Wham! Nailed it! Mr. Pesca, hmm. it is great to talk with you again. It's Monday, January 24th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So if you listen to the show, you know I always say we shouldn't normalize the catastrophic. And we also shouldn't catastrophize the normal. Even if you don't listen to the show, you know I say it because I just said it thereby representing almost 100% of the ideas you have ever heard me express, you know, if this is indeed your first gist. So of the two imperatives, I think in recent years, the emphasis has been to look at the danger of normalizing the catastrophic. Trump, catastrophic. Giving that guy or his minions a platform, it's argued, normalizes them. This is the idea that people who currently have an unsettled opinion of Stephen Miller will decide after hearing him talk, yeah, there's one sensible fella, I don't know, if you have a bunch of people who will be enthralled to the words and affect of Stephen Miller, the problem isn't that you let them hear Stephen Miller, it's that they're the kind of people who think well of the policies of Stephen Miller. Or take that other evil con Steve, Steve Bannon. He's got a platform, hundreds of thousands of people listen to his podcast. He's also got a subpoena and an indictment. Platforms don't equal immunity. Or maybe a platform is to prosecution, what ivermectin is to COVID. Sure, 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 you rely on that. And hey, I'll be the first to say, it's not just a horse dewormer, 
That's true. But I'd also say when COVID slash the federal government comes a call in, it's also not the best defense. So we live in a country riven with distrust and hatred. And therefore, I don't think the biggest problem is we've normalized via paying attention figures popular with the fringe. That's not why we're riven with distrust and hatred. It's the other way around. The distrust and hate draw people to these figures. I really do think the bigger problem is that our technology, our media, our politics, our psychology, it's all predisposed to freak out all the time. There is rampant category inflation for every hurricane, currently a three, but could be a five. Hit shores as a tropical storm. Tropical storms aren't good, but remember, could have been a five. It's also true for every political dispute and now the very state of the country. We are in conflict, true, but I keep hearing that we could well be facing a civil war. Here's the New York Times' Peter Baker on Meet the Press yesterday. I don't think we ever sort of thought growing up, I didn't anyway, that this would ever be at risk. We always assumed that the system would be you know, tested, that there would be crises and challenges, but not that the fundamental nature of who America is would be in question. And I think a lot of people are questioning that today and from different ideological points of view and from different you know, angles. But it's a different moment, I think, than we've seen. Now, I have to say, I don't think the fundamental nature of who America is is really being questioned, not in a withering under the interrogation lamp type questioning. I'm not being glib. I'm not being dismissive. I think exactly what is going on is described by Baker himself in that clip I just played, that we always knew the system would be tested and there'd be crises and challenges. That's where I think we are. We're being challenged. A way too large portion of the Republican Party insists the election was stolen. A disturbingly significant percentage of Americans have bought into this harmful nonsense and not enough people who should know better are doing anything. Does this mean... We're bound for a revolution? I'm going to tell you something. Tell me something, Sean Hannity. This country's headed towards a civil war in terms of two sides that are just hating each other. There you have the right embracing the idea of a civil war. And mainstream media has at least embraced the idea of the idea of a civil war as a legitimate worry, as you heard. Real university experts are writing books about it. All the news shows are embracing it as a topic. I get it, capital insurrection plus rampant election denialism multiplied by COVID-inspired anxiety, that's the formula by which an idea goes from unthinkable to the thing everyone is thinking of. So into the breach goes the gist. You heard my analysis, you know my predisposition, I'll cop to that. I think we have challenges, but I also think that labeling these challenges is worse than they are. Maybe even labeling them all, not so helpful. Solving them is. I'm open, however, to persuasion, and to that end, over the next couple of episodes, the gist is going to examine the idea of the idea of America's supposed impending civil war. In this show, later in the spiel, I'll give you more of that Chuck Todd Hannity analysis you obviously love, and point you to some explanations about me and where the show has been, lo, these many months. But first, the author of The Next Civil War, Stephen Marsh, lays the predicate as we discuss just how on the precipice of revolution America is, he says revolution isn't pretty, but it is pretty likely. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... 
a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Stephen Marsh is the author of The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. In the book, Marsh, who has written for The New Yorker and is a former columnist for Esquire, spins out five narratives, five different pathways to dissolution. This is powerful because Marsh understands the power of narrative and characters that they focus the mind more than quotes from professors, but he also did talk to all the professors and government agents and militia members. Militia members happen to like this reasonable and reasonably liberal Canadian for some reason. We're going to find out why. Stephen, thanks for joining me on The Gist. Pleasure to be here. So I know... In the book, you give the odds of a civil war at 67%. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, how could you possibly put the chance higher than (laughs) 64.9? Please explain yourself. Well, it's just, all it is is a meta-analysis. Well, actually, it's two pieces of information. So it was a meta-analysis done by, I think, foreign policy of like several hundred, I think it was a couple hundred experts on civil war uh, about what, and and it sort of, it took the average of their, um, how close they thought the United States was to civil war. That was also the number given in a popular poll of how how, how close Americans think they are to civil war. Uh, they were asked to rate it out of 100 and they came to 67. And that's that's roughly the number, I think, too. So, you know, it, it's that's that's it comes from, uh, you know, some pretty hard data, but it's also what I believe. Well, let's talk about violence because we could talk about the Gini coefficient and and um, environmental degradation and all these other factors. But yeah. civil war means violence, and you referenced the rising tide of violence. It is rising. I don't know if it's a tide. I mean, we've had political violence of some sort uh, for many, many years. In the 60s, there were quite a few bombings. And if you look at the actual acts of political violence, the actual acts that have occurred, it doesn't really get out of the double digits in recent years. Uh, well, murder doesn't get uh, it doesn't get into the triple digits that are extreme political right. murders. But you, but you have to remember that um, classifying those numbers, like to be nitpicky, um, is almost is almost impossible. Like when some when a white power person goes and kills someone, it's very rare for it to be classified as political murder. Um, it, it it it's often submerged in just straight murder, right? Uh, so you know, uh, most scholars think that v- political violence is really, really underreported, like significantly underreported. You know, also defining what is a political murder, like what's the difference between mm-hmm. somebody murdering someone for a hate crime as opposed to a specific political murder, uh, it's very hard to know. We do know that hate crime is significantly on the rise, political violence is on the rise, and violence in general is on the rise. So, you know, none of these are good. Right, right. And it's, it would be pointless to debate whether shooting up a Planned Parenthood clinic should be properly identified as political violence, as a mental health issue, as religiously motivated violence, if it doesn't, except for how much it augurs for what you're arguing for. You know, is it a sign of things to come? Is it something that was always ever thus? Will it lead to a greater and more widespread violence? So does... January 6th meet the definition, not of civil war, because it weren't, wasn't so widespread, but does it meet a definition of this is a this could be seen as a beginning or a part to a civil war? No, I, I don't. I, I don't even call it an insurrection. 
Um, I, I don't think it meets that threshold. I think it's just a riot. Um, I, I think to me, I'm not the person to say this, but I think the right way to think about it is that was the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. That was the, that was the premonition of what is to come. Yeah. Or maybe it was the Murrah building bombing, which didn't result in a bigger one next time. Well, I, I, I mean, I don't find like historical analogs when it comes to the United States, even its own history are, are pretty weak because it's so diverse yeah. and it's such a, it's such a strange country that does strange things. Right. So like when you're trying to actually get an, an accurate analog or an, you're an accurate permanent, it, like it's not, you're never going to get to something that's really clear. I would just say that you know, these are consistent. They happen consistently. They're part of broad movements that have, you know, widespread support. It, again, trying to keep track of that stuff is like basically impossible. Um, like the people who do it for the Southern Poverty Law Center and other places, like they say it's like trying to keep track of a, a crack spreading across your windshield. Like there's Second Amendment absolutists. There are tax, uh, tax avoidance people. There are tax resistors. There are sagebrush rebels. There are uh, sovereign citizens. There are boogaloo boys. There are and they and they change and they go back and forth and QAnon they change and they 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 fragment and then they reform in all these new forms. Sometimes, over it seems like overnight. Like sometimes it'll happen in two weeks. So you know, keeping track on exactly that number is really hard. Um, but yeah, it's definitely in the tens of millions variety. It's definitely. Def but you, but I don't want to quibble over numbers. But thirteen million isn't tens plural of millions. Here's a data point we just got. The Oath Keepers, they just arrested Stuart Rhodes and there was a, a, a membership list that was acquired and it had about 40,000 members. I think that's horrific and it's an increase from the last time the ADL and the uh, SPLC put a number on it. Those but are it, explicit it's... members. Those are people who mm -hmm. sign a membership card. Like, they, they, like that, that is a fragment of the number of people who are affiliated with that movement. Right. Like like to be to, to call yourself officially like to go and like sign a piece of paper saying I'm an oath keeper. I mean, that is that's that's a that's a that's a high threshold. I mean, you know, th but there's another th th there's another way to look at it if you want. Like if you look want to look at explicit secessionists, like people who believe that the United States should di should disunion. Like that number is 58 percent of Trump Republicans and 41 percent of Biden Democrats. So that's that's a real big chunk of America. Like, like, yeah, that's like a third. Apparently, according to polls, uh, Cal exit, a third of Californians want to exit. I don't know how serious to take that. I don't know if that necessarily folds into the idea of a civil war. Well, I mean, what we're talking about, the civil war that I'm talking about here is not, uh, you know, blue jackets and gray jackets. It's uh, no, I know it, it, it's chaos versus order. It's disunion versus union. Right. And, you know, the forces of disunion are, are certainly significant. If the, let's say, tens of millions, as you say, uh, disaffected Americans who are willing to put violence behind their actions, if they do so, mm -hmm. what does your, not just predictions, but what does your reporting show the U.S. military who has a lot more guns than they do? What will, what will, how will they respond? Well, they're, they're in a tricky situation. So tactically... Um, like speaking selfishly as a writer, what I wanted was like a big battle scene. Like w what would us troops do? They were based that, you know, the, the, the experts that I spoke to in the military, both anonymously and, and on the record, 
you know, it's not going to be a contest. It's like sending up an NBA team against a YMCA team Sunday night game. Like they'll just wipe, they'll just wipe them out. But the problems aren't really tactical so much as they are legal and political. So the legal issues are nightmarish. Um, the, the book goes into quite a bit of technical detail about them. But basically, you know, to, to engage militarily, you need situational awareness. You need to, you know, you need to violate people's civil rights in a really basic way. You need to be able to do things like turn off the internet and, uh, you know, turn off the water in a town, right? Um, the U.S. really doesn't have a, a, a strong mechanism for doing that. And so they would be, in a, they would be caught in a terrible double bind of essentially trying to do a military action while having the legal status of a police action. The other problem is that counterinsurgency is a losing game. And if anyone knows it, it's the American military. They've spent 70 years perfecting counterinsurgency and losing. And they, and they, they know, like, there are two schools of thought. One is counterinsurgency can never work. And the other is it can work under extremely rare, extremely limited circumstances. And neither of those would be in place, of course, in a, in a country as freedom-loving as the United States. So, you know, it would be a disaster. Are the risks that we're talking about all from the hard right, mostly from the hard right? How would you characterize that? Yeah, it's mostly from the right, although certainly um, there's a process at work called complementary radicalization where as the right gets more radical, the left becomes more radical, and then it, they feed off each other. And it's sort of an inverse pendulum, like as it, it, get, it tends towards extremism. So then does the left, just by objecting so strongly to the right, do they play into it? They shouldn't, the left shouldn't uh, lay down because they're rightly calling out the risk of uh, the risk posed by the forces on the other side. What's the what's the role of a proper leftist who doesn't want civil war? Well, this is going to sound very Canadian. And I, I, I wonder if it sounds out of touch. But like, you know, the left, as I see it in America, is obsessed with cultural politics and identity politics. And it is sort of forgetting like the the week that the Oath Keepers list dropped was a week consumed by Dave Chappelle discourse and the Rust shooting. And that's insane to me. You know, like these, the, the far-right groups are going to, in, are going to electoral officials' houses to intimidate them. And, th and that is going to affect every election from now on. And the left is in an, a small echo chamber of its own impotence and, and, and shredding itself. And, you know, so the Canadian part here is what the left really needs to do is recognize that what matters here are institutions. And what matters here is reforming institutions to, so that they become meaningfully democratic. And then it is really time to work towards true solidarity um, because we're going to need it. Like, you know, like, that solidarity is not going to be some kind of luxury. It's actually going to be a requirement of surviving as a democratic republic. I want to talk. I want to talk to you for a second about falsifiability. Um, yeah. I always think about this. Now, at one point Me in too. your book, you say, you know, in a poll taken in the aftermath of Trump's election, thirty-one percent of American voters predicted a second civil war would occur within five years. Right. So Trump was elected in twenty sixteen. That's five years ago. It didn't happen. Meaning, I look at that poll and say, well, they were wrong. But you look at that poll as evidence of <laughs> that that the civil war is coming. Well, you know. Like falsifiability actually is pretty close to my heart in this book because okay. because um, 
like there, there are different models in this book. Some of them are incredibly strong. Uh, demographic change, for instance, like that, that, that those, those trends are pretty solid and they're, they're, those predictions are incredibly valid as are the environmental ones. Like they're just, those are like beyond predictions, really. There's something else. Um, the, then there are other ones like economic models, which are basically worth nothing. Right. Like, like the, like it, I put them in, like I put in the IMF guy talking about economic inequality and what it does. But the truth is nobody, nobody knows what's going to happen in the economy. And like, and the predictive capacity of any given model is negligible. Um, and then there are other, so there are different models in this book, agronomic, uh, environmental, uh, inv economic, political, historical, and they all have different strengths. I just, acknowledge in the book what the strengths are. So, you know, you're dealing with, when you're dealing with falsifiability, like mm -hmm. it's different in each of these things and I'm trying to stitch them together in a meaningful way. But, you know, ultimately some of these are a lot stronger than others. Polls are, as you know, are not particularly worth a hell of a lot. Um, I mean, I put that in there as evidence that of, of the state of people's thinking about this. Uh, that it's not like some out of left field idea that in fact it's actually quite a common thing to be discussed among Americans, which it is. When we talk about the Civil War, we talked about the definition of it and we talked about how it could happen. But the question of why, I'm going to say I've been a little guilty of glossing over and I'm thinking of this John Harris essay. I don't know if you read it in Politico. And the headline was, we're in a new civil war about what exactly grievous conflicts have been about things, war, slavery, depression. But this time we just don't like each other. Does a civil war have to be about an issue or even a series of coherent issues that the combatants all agree on? Civil wars are almost never fought over ideas. Like that is, that is the, there are cases of that, but that's not, what they're fought about is control. And they're fought over the institutions and, the, and, and, and money and, and power. Um, you know, like- And then to, afterwards, maybe there's some post hoc uh, rationalization yeah, of what the idea is. Well, yeah, Lincoln himself more. said, Lincoln himself said, like if, 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 if I did not have to free one slave, but to keep the union, I would, have, I would still do it. Right. Like the, like the, the post-national rationalization that this was a, for, a war, the first civil war was fought over liberation. Like that's actually just post hoc. Like that is Lincoln himself said it wasn't about that. It was about union. So, you, you know, what, what if you were to ask me what this is about, it would be about the fact that, you know, American, you see African-Americans, you see uh, Latino Americans moving up economically and, and in terms of demographics, and America is about to become a majority minority country. Everywhere else in the world that that happens, this is not a phenomenon unique to America's racial pathologies. This is a phenomenon that is seen all over the world. It, happen, it happens in India, it happens all over Africa, it happens all over the Middle East. When that happens, there tends to be a rise in political violence. So what it's about is that. It's not about, you know, some de something debated on the floor of the Senate. Right. It's about it's about that that feeling that the identity of the country is about to pass people by. And, you know, and that's why it, it's so hard to get out of, because it's about things that are far, far underneath the level of ideas um, or or discourse. Even they're about they're about senses of meaning. And, and, and like when I think about what this the next civil war will look like to me, it is a war over what America means. But like. 
I, I do believe that there is, like if any country can reinvent itself, it's America. Of course that's true. It's the country of political reinvention from the beginning. And, and I think, you know, the trends are going one way. I really do think it would be a mistake not to look at that clearly. Like, it, it, you know, it, it's a mistake not to say, to, to, to be like, well, the numbers aren't that big. Like, these trends are going one way. Everywhere else in the world, they go, they go, they have a certain end that is very, very unpleasant. Um, but on the other hand, it would also be fraudulent, I think, not to say, well, like, you know, America is the country where they have solved problems like this before. They, ha they did find a way out of the 60s with the Vi Voting Rights Act. They, they, did, they have made major leaps forward in their past, often in times of incredible peril. So, you know, that kind of reinventive spirit, I, I mean, I see it when I go to America. And so I don't, I don't think it is fraudulent to say that it's real. Um, on the other hand, I think there is, you know, it needs to be activated now. Because, because, because it's not just going to work out by itself. Th that hope, that hope of, you know, is, we're going to be the 60s and then, you know, and then afterwards it's going to be the 70s and it's all going to be disco and lava lamps and, you know, quaaludes. Like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Scratchy synthetic fibers. That's okay. <laughs> Stephen Marsh is the author of The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. He is also the man behind the podcast, How Not to Fuck Up Your Kids Too Bad. Don't let your babies grow up to be insurrectionists. Listen to that. <laughs> Stephen, great talking to you. Yeah, great talking to you This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort, and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And now the spiel. For the last 11 months, I waited. I contemplated. I wanted a sign that it was time to come back. That there was an issue too big to let pass. That America needed me. Days ago, that galvanizing development presented itself. The green M&M, you will notice, is no longer wearing sexy boots. Now she's wearing sensible sneakers. They came for the potato heads. I said nothing. They came for the Seuss. 
and I made an excuse. I thought if I fought, I had too much to lose. But now the once alluring, dare I say coquettish, green M&M is being forced into sneakers. Maybe she's just commuting from Staten Island, trying to navigate the urban jungle of Harrison Ford and Sigourney Weaver. I've got a brain for business, but a bod for s'mores. Tucker Carlson continues with his analysis. Why the change? Well, according to M&Ms, quote, we all win when we see more women in leading roles. Because leading women do not wear sexy boots. Leading women wear frumpy shoes. The frumpier, the better. That's the rule. Hearing the M&M Corporation's explanation of we all win when we see women in leading roles, I would not have focused on the inference about women in boots. I would have focused on the fact that M&Ms aren't women or people. And look, if you police the personas of candy and then you eat the candy, you're the cannibal cop. Remember the cannibal cop? Real guy, tabloid fodder. Didn't really eat anyone, but he was arrested, tried, stripped of his badge. But no, this wasn't really the story that brought me back. What brought me back was months of legal negotiation and business incorporation. I'll admit it, it was mostly my wife. But while I was away, I began to crave a certain kind of content of which there is a paucity. I need voices and outlets that do not default to doctrine and that do not traffic in a never-ending fire hose of cataclysm. The media imperatives towards drama and doomsaying are so pressing, I yearned for sources that would properly contextualize the very real and often quite dire problems we face, but also have some perspective. There is too high a price to pay for laboring under the misimpression that every second and every issue represents an existential struggle. Audiences are gained, the practice goes, by emphasizing threats. Media these days optimized towards pushing the scariest scenarios. And there's also a social pressure for the individual actor not to play down the harms, lest the person swimming against the tide be seen as insufficiently sympathetic or informed. I want outlets that properly tell us the threats while also conveying rational context. I have been, and I want to continue to be such an outlet. To wit, the two clips I played earlier in the show. We heard Sean Hannity saying, civil war is nigh. And I found out that he said that because that quote is on the back of Stephen Marsh's book. But I wanted to play the longer clip. Now, keep in mind, the whole clip doesn't absolve Hannity, not even close. But it's interesting. Listen to how he muddles the message. So the year was 2018. He was speaking on his radio show. And the imminent threat he was reacting to was Robert Mueller possibly issuing an indictment. So remember how he described that? But then he says this. And I'm not talking about a war. Wait, you're not? You just were. What are you talking about? I'm talking about in terms of... There's going to be two sides of this that are fighting and dividing this country at a level we've never seen. And you're going to basically have two sides in America, those that stand for truth and those that that literally buy into the corrupt deep state, you know, attacks against a a duly elected president. And that's what it's going to be. I'm not talking about violence. I'm talking about everybody hating each other. You're not going to be able to have a family dinner without mashed potatoes being thrown across the room. Okay, so he's really talking about a mass mashed potato incident. Depending on the sides you serve, the chili can carnage. Doesn't get him off the hook. He's still being extremely incautious with serious threats. And he's also engaged in the Trumpian tactic of saying the thing and its opposite, I guess to give him some implausible deniability or maybe because he realized he said something he shouldn't have said. Hannity is being extremely irresponsible with dramatic rhetoric. But is he calling for civil war? I don't know. Maybe it doesn't matter. Maybe behind Hannity are shock troops who will proudly scream civil war. 
But I wouldn't conclude that just because Hannity has a huge audience that he, Charlie Kirk, Dan Bongino, Dana Lash, just because they talk like this, that it necessarily follows that everyone who listens to them or most of the people wouldn't actually be appalled if insurrectionists really did hang Mike Pence. I'm not defending any excuse makers. I'm not minimizing the analysis. All I'm trying to do is get a more tangible sense of how many Americans really favor bloodshed. Let's try to get the threat right. So here's one other attempt to bring more context to a clip I myself played. Here was the Chuck Todd question that elicited Peter Baker's answer that you heard earlier about the fundamentals of America being under question. I want to bring up a quick troubling uh, number that we had in our poll. 76%, three and four of everybody we surveyed, said that our democracy is under threat. But this is, Peter Baker, a pretty concerning overall. The, the rationales may not matter mm-hmm. if everybody agrees that our democracy is crumbling. Well, not everyone agrees, and under threat doesn't mean crumbling. There's the instinct towards catastrophizing. But the analysis is kind of backwards. It's not more alarming that both sides think America is under threat. Both sides thinking that is why you have that very high number. The reasons? Well, succinctly, Democrats think the threat is Trump, and Republicans think the threat is the lack of Trump. He was rejected, and they don't buy it. As I said, terrible development. But let's not give the minority, big minority, but the minority of Americans who think that the power to convince us that we're at the point of a real revolution. Chuck Todd sums up his segment with these words, with differing explanations of the threat from each party. It's it's a bit scary, especially because it isn't for the same reasons. Right. And that's what makes it even harder. And no consensus what to do about no it. No consensus on what to do. All right. But wait, it's troubling. There's no agreement on the reasons for our deep disagreements. Of course there isn't. There's no consensus on the fundamental question of a lack of consensus. Now, when the threat was terrorism, Gallup polled 75% Americans worried a great deal or a fair amount in 2002. It was up to 79% in 2003. In fact, it didn't come down below 70 until a couple years into the Obama administration. still about 60%. The number of Americans worrying about terrorism isn't that much bigger than the number worrying about a civil war. And by the way, both things should be worried about a little bit. But maybe it's just that we're paying more attention to the civil war threat because it's new, and might I add, because we're paying attention to it. Also with terrorism, if one half the country stopped worrying about it, it really wouldn't affect the independent perspectives of the other half. But with the question of internal strife, if one side's worries subside, a large portion of the other side will respond in kind. The worry is the rising temperature, lowering it inspires a feedback loop. Maybe, been thinking about it, maybe we should think about it like this. When temperature rises in the body, it's because the immune system is kicking in. So maybe this three quarters of Americans worrying about democracy being threatened indicates just that enough people care and are taking this seriously. It's a good thing. I'm open to all interpretations, just so long as we keep arresting Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, Proud Boys, and their ilk. And just so long as we keep historic trends and the nature of our challenges in perspective. I'm going to back out now and give you the bigger picture because what I'm doing is making a pledge to you. I will keep the gist as a place where we can hear and discuss the biggest issues of the day and sometimes the littlest, you know, plain being even smaller than peanut. What I did today is what I'll do tomorrow. I'll state my opinion. I'll cop to my biases as best I can. I'll listen to other voices who I try to present in the best light. I did a version of that for more than 1,400 episodes. If all goes well, I just might do a couple thousand more. 
And that's why today I wanted to return with a gist that strikes you, the listeners, as, yeah, that's the gist. That's, that's the gist I always knew. The format, the worldview, the occasionally freakish obsessions. This show and this week's show will be informed by my commitment to speech, discourse, and exchanging and challenging opinions. I decided that needed to be the form, but not necessarily the content. And I know you're curious about what happened to me and with me and my former employer and what took so long to come back. I'd be curious too. To that end, what I've done is I've talked to some different shows this week where you can hear my answer to the questions that inquisitive hosts posed and all that went down. You can hear me on the fifth column, blocked and reported. I've got an on the media spot booked and you can check in at mikepesca.com. It's a really nice website. Do people still say website? Until then, thanks for being part of this experiment in productive discourse, good faith, and the occasional Ralph Nader bestiality reference. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced, more than produced, sown, reaped, mined, cultivated, wet-nursed by Joel Patterson. Michelle Hunter Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. And for what I said about Joel, add envisioned, inveigled, and advocated. The show is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Check out AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. It's been 340 days, so it's good to say, um peru, de peru, du peru, and thanks for listening.